Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 10. After Hours with Joseph Pierce. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. Today, I interrupt our journey through the great divorce to bring onto the show a guest that I wanted to talk to for a long, long time. Joseph Pierce is the director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute. He's the editor of the St. Austin Review, and he's series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions. You can listen to him on the Faith and Culture podcast, and he is the author of a colossal number of books, which include his own autobiography, Race with the Devil, Tolkien, Man and Myth, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, and many, many others. Joseph Pierce, welcome to Pints with Jack. It's good to be with you on Pints with Jack. I wish we were literally having Pints with Jack. That would be marvellous. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's afternoon for you, so I think that should be allowed. I'm English. It's, it's five o'clock in England. <laughs> <laughs> and happy birthday. Thank you, yes. If you can't have a drink, then when can you? Uh, precisely, precisely. Now, listeners will notice that, like myself, you also have an accent, and the perceptive among them will realise that you also hail from the greatest country in the world. <laughs> By which you mean England and not Britain, because there's a big difference as far as I'm concerned. Well, Lewis himself said only foreigners talk about Britain. Yeah, absolutely. It was, an, it, was an, it was a novel concept that came about at the same time as the Protestant Reformation, but that's another discussion. <laughs> Now, there are a lot of reasons that I've wanted to have you on this show, aside from your excellent accent, of course. Um, firstly, you write books about all of the people that I care about, G.K. Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis. But there's another reason. Whenever I'm in a Catholic setting and talking about C.S. Lewis, there's one question which inevitably gets asked. Why didn't C.S. Lewis become Catholic? And so I wanted to invite you on the show because you quite literally wrote the book on this subject back in 2013 when you wrote C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. And whenever I'm asked this question, I always point people towards your book. But after today, I'm going to be able to point them to this interview where they can get a flavor for the sorts of issues that they'll see discussed within its pages. While my co-host Matt and I, we are enthusiastically Catholic we know we've got listeners from across a wide range of Christian denominations who are all fans of Lewis. And so I suppose digging into Jack's denominational allegiance can be a bit of a sensitive subject, but I really hope that Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant alike will really enjoy this discussion about a fascinating question and about a Christian author whom we all love. Well, yes, I mean, and, and uh, Lewis was a significant milestone on my own conversion. And like you and like so many people, when I took the step to cross the Tiber, or swim the Tiber, I suppose, to be to be correct, you step across the Tiber, you fall in and get wet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I decided to cross the Tiber, as with many converts who were led, shall we say, to the threshold, at least in part, by their love for the works of C.S. Lewis, you look back having crossed the other side of the river and Lewis is still standing on the other side and you sort of wonder, well, why did he not uh, take that final plunge, so to speak? Uh, which, of course, figuratively, uh, in the Pilgrim's Regress, he does actually, he's forced to, to listen to Mother Kirk, Mother Church, to strip himself naked of all prejudices and to take the plunge uh, in order to in order to convert. Now, of course, he, he would he would have called that not Mother Kirk something different to what perhaps Catholics would call Mother Church. But nonetheless, 
we do wonder why um, why he didn't see things logically as we believe he should have done. And that was, if you like, uh, the motivation behind my writing of my book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. I would like to say one thing uh, by way of the fact, as you, you quite rightly say, that Lewis, thanks be to God, is what he wanted to be. And that's a bridge between the various denominations where we can actually meet in peace, so <laughs> to speak, with Lewis as the peacemaker, which is which is wonderful. I did make it perfectly clear at the beginning of my book that this book was first and foremost for lovers of C.S. Lewis, whether they were Catholic or non-Catholic. And it wasn't for people that didn't like C.S. Lewis, whether they were Catholic or not. So in other words, the thing that I hope my book uh, is addressing is the people I'm hoping will read it are pe- people who love C.S. Lewis. And then and we use that, if you like, as the meeting point, the trysting place where we then discuss, OK, well, how Catholic was he? How Catholic wasn't he? Um why did he not convert? Was he right not to convert? Or was he wrong not to convert? Or is it a moot point? So in other words, so I spent whatever it was, 60, 60, 70,000 words addressing that very question by looking at Lewis's works and his letters and, and other things. Well, before we really get stuck into today's episode, here at Pints with Jack, we like to begin each episode with a quotation that points to the underlying theme of the discussion. And so today's is an extract from the preface of Mere Christianity, where Lewis says, You will not learn from me whether you ought to become an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or a Roman Catholic. There is no mystery about my own position. I am a very ordinary layman of the Church of England, not especially high, nor especially low, nor especially anything else. Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors, was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. So with that, cheers. Cheers. I hope that's not iced tea. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I haven't actually read your book on Belloc yet, but the one line from Belloc that I know is, wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedicamus Domino. Wonderful lines from a wonderful man. And a perfect justification for drinking in the morning. (laughs) Agreed. So, as I mentioned earlier... It would have been a shame, though, because I'm I'm actually drinking PG tips at the moment. Oh, no, that's totally... I I also (laughs) have a cup of tea. Oh, you do as well. Okay, well, that's fair enough. All right, (laughs) don't feel quite so bad now. (laughs) So, as I mentioned earlier, you've written books about all sorts of interesting people, Tolkien, Lewis, Belloc, Wilde, but your own story is also rather fascinating. So, for those who haven't read your book, Race with the Devil, could you just give us an outline of your own story and the role that Lewis had to play there? Yeah, again, you know, it, it's a challenge to give the, the soundbite version as, as it would be a challenge, of course, in this one interview to give a, a thoroughgoing discussion of Lewis's relationship with the Catholic Church. So, of course, people should go, go ahead and buy the book. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so the one-minute version, first of all, the, sub, the subtitle of my book, Race with the Devil, is My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. So that sort of gives the game away. That As a young man, as a teenager, I was involved with a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization in England called the National National Front. And I was involved in that organization for about 10 or 11 years from the age of 15 to, to, to about the age of 25 or 26. Um, so the book charts, if you like, my descent into that murky world of radical politics and racial hatred. And then my emergence from it, largely through an engagement with these writers that, that we're talking about, first, first and foremost, by my discovery of the writings of G.K. Chesterton, 
But I tell the story in my autobiography of my first coming across C.S. Lewis. And it was in a, a secondhand bookshop in the East End of London, where I live. And I'd, I'd heard of Lewis. I mean, I wasn't a complete ignoramus. I'd heard of Lewis. And I think, but I think all that I knew was he was a, an author. And I think I'd heard of The Lion, of Witch in the Wardrobe, but I'd never read it. And I had no inkling uh, <laughs> whatsoever of it actually being a, a, a Christian work at all. I had no idea that Lewis was Christian. So anyway, something, and I believe it was the promptings of the Holy Spirit, prompted me to take this book by C.S. Lewis off the shelf of the secondhand bookshop and I open it at random. I used to say that I looked in the index for Chesterton because I used to do that. I used to go into bookstores and if there's a name that I thought, I've read that somewhere, maybe he knows something about Chesterton or New Chesterton. I would go and, and open the book and look at Chesterton the index and if there's any mention of Chesterton, then go to that page. So I actually told this story for a while uh, saying that I went and looked at the, at the Chesterton the index uh, and then went to the page. And then someone pointed out to me that, that this particular book by Lewis has no index. <laughs> so clearly that wasn't what I did. Uh, so, But that makes it even more amazing because what I must have done was open the book at random and saw the magic word Chesterton. And it was actually Lewis relating the first time he'd ever read Chesterton. And at the time, he was an atheist and a somewhat cynical atheist in the trenches of World War One, recovering from uh, trench fever in Le Trépot in France, and he reads a, a volume of Chesterton's essays and falls in love with Chesterton in spite of Chesterton's Christianity. Now, at this time, I'd also fallen in love with Chesterton in spite of his Christianity. So I thought <laughs> Lewis is a kindred spirit because he gets Chesterton, he loves Chesterton, but he doesn't take Chesterton's Christianity seriously. Lewis is a perfect person. <laughs> um, so I bought the book. Of course, the book I bought was Lewis's Surprised by Joy, which was Lewis's own conversion story. So as I'm reading and I can see where it's going, I think, oh, my word, he's going to convert, isn't he? This is a, a, a <laughs> conversion story. But I, I gripped, got gripped by it, read it. And again, whereas I couldn't help liking Chesterton in spite of the fact he was Christian, I couldn't help liking C.S. Lewis in spite of the fact he was Christian. So that I, therefore, I added C.S. Lewis's books to my Chesterton books as I went around buying. And you know, once you start reading Chesterton and Lewis in any uh, amount, you know, it's only a matter of time before you come to your senses. <laughs> That's really cool. There's also a lovely parallel with Lewis's experience of picking up a copy of Fantasties at the Leatherhead Station. Yeah, it, it, it was actually a similar experience. I mean, I think he says of that experience uh, that it baptized his imagination, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what Lewis uh, and Chester did. They were baptizing my intellect, really, because what was important to me was I believed, as is the sort of the belief of the zeitgeist, the, the, the culture in which we live, that Christianity is irrational. That, you know, that if, if you're a Christian, you're, you're basically accepting an irrational view of the cosmos, right? You're, you're not being reasonable. And what Lewis and Chesterton both taught me was the indissoluble union, the marriage between fides et ratio, between faith and reason. And that was crucial to me when I realized that actually being a Christian was entirely rational and in actual fact, being a relativist or materialist was ultimately irrational. It was, it was a game changer for me. Well, as Lewis said, a young man, if he wants to remain a sound atheist, can't be too careful of his reading. Exactly, exactly. And I actually, when I'm giving my conversion story talk, I said, what's true of a sound atheist is also true of a sound racist neo-Nazi. So, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, reading Chesterton and Lewis led me away from that, uh, that irrational hatred, bigotry, a view of the world of Weltanschauung, to give it its 
German sounding name, which is appropriate if you're a neo-Nazi, you know, to, to move beyond that worldview towards uh, towards something much more sane uh, and much more loving. I mean, the, the, the other thing is, of course, is that what Christianity teaches us is that love is rational. In other words, love is connected to freely choosing to do to sacrifice oneself for the other, whoever the other might be, God, neighbor, enemy, doesn't matter. So the um, interconnectivity, the indissoluble connection between love and sacrificing oneself and making a free choice to do so. In other words, that love is a choice, it's not an emotion. So love itself becomes something which is rational. And again, I learned that from well, Chesterton, Lewis, uh, and others. And you ultimately moved to America, like myself. So I have to ask, how often do people think you're from Australia? <laughs> I say to people when, on a very frequent basis, I'm asked whether I'm Australian, that if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me that question, I'd retire tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> An Australian dollar or a US dollar? <laughs> Whatever's worth the most. Um, yeah, I know, innumerable times. I think in my case, it would be more than in your case, because uh, I have a Cockney accent, and I'm convinced that the Cockney accent sounds very Australian to American ears. Um, but if you get asked a, a lot of times as well, then maybe it's not just that. No, no, it isn't. Uh, but one question I get asked a lot is what I miss most about England and what I love most about America. What would you say to that? What I miss about England? Well, first of all, pints with Jack or anyone else. Um, you know, I miss the English pub and mm. I miss real ale. You know, the sort of the hand pumped worn ale you can only get in an English pub. It has a very unique flavour, very different from the craft ales over here, which I also love. So I miss English pubs. I miss the English countryside. I miss walking on English public footpaths, those medieval rights of way that allow you to sort of plan circular routes anywhere. That begin and end at a pub. Well, actually, what I used to do is drive somewhere and they don't begin and end at the pub. The pub's about two thirds or three quarters of the way round. And then you, <laughs> and you, then you can spend the last third of the walk sort of walking off the, the, the food and the drink uh, before you got back to your car. Um, <laughs> but you met, met many, many happy days doing such things in the, on, on, you know, the Lake District, Peak District, the East Anglia, you, know, you name it. So I'm, I'm, I miss the English countryside. I miss English pubs, country pubs. Perfect. Uh, what do I love about America? Actually, one of the things I love about America, believe it or not, is Americans. Um, <laughs> you know, that uh, there's an enthusiasm uh, about many Americans and they, they do things. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes feel that actually trying to be an on-fire evangelist in England is like trying to flog the proverbial dead horse. Um, <laughs> uh, whereas over here, you know, you, you can meet other people who are equally on fire for the Lord and, and, and want to actually go around spreading the gospel and evangelizing the culture, laying down their life for Jesus. And, and you don't sound like a weirdo when you're over here. Whereas in England, you would sound a bit like a weirdo. <laughs> So before we get into Lewis's relationship with the Catholic Church, let's first talk about his ecumenical legacy. Because, as I said in the intro, Christians from almost every denomination just love Lewis. And all the sensible ones listen to this podcast. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, what do you think Lewis has done for Christian ecumenism? Well, I think the most important thing is he is a very 
anti-ecumenical ecumenist in the sense that there's a certain type of ecumenism which is about dumbing things down to a lowest common denominator of inanity and banality and Lewis was always an enemy of that sort of ecumenism. Um, what he called for was not the lowest common denominator which unites us which is ultimately becomes what he despised and called Christianity and water diluting the purity of, of the gospel. He, he, what he pointed this towards the highest common factor, those things that unite us. Um, and so in that sense, he, if you like, put a dividing line beneath which we cannot go without ceasing to be merely Christian. We become something which is non-Christian, and to use an old-fashioned term, we become heretics. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, so for instance, Lewis, I mean, absolutely bare minimum that Lewis is pointing to uh, is that you have to believe in the Trinity, you have to believe in the Incarnation, that Christ is, is God, and that you have to understand that there is, oh, and it's a sacramental approach, of course, he believes in the, in the sacraments, which becomes problematic where, where, where you have, shall we say, non-Catholic, non-Anglican lovers of Lewis that don't have his sacramental understanding of practicing the faith. So really what he is is, is, is 90% the real thing and doesn't allow us to become that sort of modernist. And he despised modernism as Cheston did. You know, uh, a modernist is one who believes that the church should move with the times rather than, as Cheston said, we don't want a church that will move with the times, we want a church that will move the times or move the world, okay? That's true Christianity moves the world, it's not moved by it. Uh, and Lewis understood that difference, and it's in, it's, in, it's in all of his works, this war with modernism, this war with the spirit of the age, and in that he's a friend of those that believe in the permanent things, the timeless things, those that are the same from every generation. From you know, I've just written a book called Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, and I, I start with Homer. And, and the thing about it is that from Homer, two and a half thousand years, the great writers have the same understanding of an unchanging human nature uh, and our relationship with God and neighbor and environment. And, and those don't change because they are perennial and they're permanent. Lewis had a great understanding of those perennial permanent things. And as a result, all across the denominations, they loved him for it. I, I remember a story by Peter Kreeft. He was talking about an interdenominational conference where in their discussions, all of the delegates from the different denominations, they were freely quoting Lewis in their discussions. And at the end of the conference, a motion was put forward to say that despite the di their differences, all the delegates wanted to affirm their common patrimony, the sacred scriptures, the early ecumenical councils, and the complete writings of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and it received a cheer. <laughs> yeah, well, they, but they, that, this is a certain type of Christian that I would call the, uh, the C.S. Lewis Christians, right? Uh, and, and they are la creme de la creme. And I certainly feel at home, I feel in many ways... Uh, and it's a paradox here that, that when I'm invited to speak at a C.S. Lewis conference, I feel more at home than I do if, I, if I'm speaking purely to Catholics. And, and that's because there seems to be a kindredness of spirits across the divide, which is uh, transcendent in a, in, a, in a very special way, a, a unity which, which Lewis would rejoice in. So uh, absolutely. But there is a there's a problem, of course, and we, and we do need to address this problem. There's another, there's another type of Christianity which is basically diluting the faith that has no time for, for Lewis at all. And this, ironically, uh, would include the vast majority of modern-day Anglicans. So, you know, the, the, the irony is that the, the denomination that, that Lewis chose has basically deserted him 
and has sunk away from him into this miasma of modernism, which he despised. So there's an irony here. So yes, the, 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 the best Christians are united by the faith and reason espoused by Lewis in his works. But those those Christians that are more in tune with the world than with the gospel um, have, have ceased reading him. I think Walter Hooper said to me, I think it was to me, maybe I'm quoting him saying something else. But anyway, Walter Hooper said that very few Anglicans read Lewis these days. But fortunately, some still do. During my own time in the Protestant world, I actually went to an Anglican church for several years. And during my time there, I got to see that there's real variety within the Church of England. For example, that parish, they looked and sounded much more like a non-denominational evangelical church than most of the other Anglican churches I'd encountered before. And it was actually through members of that parish that I was reintroduced to Lewis as an adult. So there's certainly still some fidelity to Lewis there. But I would also say that during my time in that world, I did encounter more than a few things which I think would worry Lewis greatly. Anyway, what was Lewis's approach to denominations and where did his mere Christianity fit in? Well... I think that there are two faces of Lewis here. I don't mean he's two-faced. I, I, I believe he has a, he has an apostolate that he's aware of. Uh, again, St. John Paul II said to Walter Hooper, Walter Hooper met St. John Paul II sometime in the 1990s, early 1990s, I think. And when Walter Hooper was introduced as uh, you know Lewis's personal secretary in the, the final years of his life, apparently St. John Paul II's eyes lit up and he said, "Ah, C.S. Lewis. I can't do the Polish accent, by the way. This is going to be the, <laughs> this is going to be the Cockney version of." of John II. Um, he said, "Ah, C.S. Lewis. He knew what his apostolate was, and he did it." The point is that he knew that he was preaching that highest common factor Christianity to all denominations. He knew that's what his public mission was, his public calling was. So that's the public C.S. Lewis. That's the Lewis we see in, in, in his writings. But there was the other, the other C.S. Lewis was the C.S. Lewis who referred to the Eucharist as the Blessed Sacrament, who went to auricular confession. In other words, he, he, he practiced a very Catholic version of Anglicanism. So the thing with Lewis is that, you know, that he has this very sacramental view, he goes to confession, he believes in the real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. He doesn't normally talk about this in his published writings because this is not his apostolate. But there are exceptions. He, he actually, he says that after the Blessed Sacrament, your neighbor is the most important thing. Now, that is a direct reference to the great commandment of Christ, that you love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor. So in other words, the, the Blessed Sacrament, Clearly, Lewis believes in the real presence of the Blessed Sacrament because that is God uh, incarnate sacramentally. And of course, that is even more important than our neighbor. But nothing else is more important than our neighbor than that. So this is Lewis really with a, uh, a Catholic sacramental view of reality. But this is not the Lewis we normally see in his books because he keeps that side for the most part. This was an exception. For the most part, he keeps that private. Although Lewis was this ecumenical figure, He's also credited with bringing quite a considerable number of people to embrace Catholicism. In the index of your book, you tell the stories of some of these people. Uh, you mentioned him already, uh, Lewis's secretary, Walter Hooper, his friend George Sayer, Hugo Dyson's son, as well as Peter Crave, Thomas Howard, Father Dwight Longnecker. Why does Lewis have this effect on people? Well, I think the most important thing is that in some senses, and of course, I know I'm going to raise the eyebrows and probably the ire of some of your listeners here by saying this, 
but in some senses, Lewis was uh, um, much more Catholic than perhaps he realized himself, in the sense that he does insist, and this is crucial, on the philosophical, rational philosophical underpinnings for Christianity. Um, he doesn't have a, a full grasp of scholasticism. You, no one would call C.S. Lewis a Thomist, but he certainly embraces the understanding that if Christianity is irrational, then we get rid of Christianity. In other words, that God is not asking us to believe anything which is contrary to reason. And that's absolutely crucial. And I think, in other words, once people start taking this rational path to Christ, which Lewis leads us on, it leads us away from fideism, right? Just, uh, oh, you just believe something because the Bible says it and however you interpret the Bible and it doesn't matter. Uh, so that's sort of, if you like, that understanding of the Bible, which is very sola scriptura, that the, the, the Bible by itself is sufficient uh, and your interpretation of it is sufficient, even though there's as many different interpretations of the Bible as there are people interpreting it. He takes leads us away from that and basically towards uh, an understanding of Christianity, even the mysteries of Christianity, such as the Trinity and the problem of pain. Uh, you know, he grasps the nettle. He, he, he takes on these hard issues always from the perspective that a Christian perspective is a realist perspective. It's where reason meets reality is Christianity. And I think that approach leads people deeper, as he would say in The Last Battle, leads people further up and further in. And if you go further enough up and further enough in, you end up swimming the Tiber. There is quite a considerable number of Catholic sounding doctrines that he did believe in. You've mentioned a bunch of them, but also he believed in purgatory. Yep. He believed in praying for the dead. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a Byzantine Catholic. So when he couches in mere Christianity, theosis, divinization, the idea that we participate in the divine life and pretty much everything is seen through that lens, that really resonates with me. You, you mentioned um, the relationship between Lewis and Thomism. You mentioned in your book that he seems to have accumulated quite a bit of St. Thomas Aquinas, but through Dante, that Dante managed to smuggle an awful lot of Catholic theology into Lewis's brain, something that he would say that he himself does through the Chronicles of Narnia and his other works of fiction. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's an irony there, of course, is that, that Dante got past those watchful dragons, mm -hmm. uh, which in this case, of course, would be Lewis's prejudices. And and, and, and we, do, we do need to address this thorny topic as well, because, you know, I wrote a 60,000 word book on C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, where was, uh, Tolkien managed to give a three word response <laughs> to why C.S. Lewis never became Catholic. And what, what Tolkien said was uh, he laughed and said the ulterior motive. <laughs> now, now, of course, for, for, for Englishmen such as us, that the pun is obvious, Ulsteria, 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 as in Ulster, as in Northern Ireland. And of course, C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, and uh, it's difficult for us to perceive, I'm older than you, but I remember the Troubles, and I was involved in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And Belfast was one of the most sectarian cities in the world, and basically the Catholic and Protestant community did not talk to each other. In fact, for large parts of the history, they were killing each other. So, you know... Um, Lewis himself said that he was from the cradle was taught never to trust a papist, right? Never to trust a Catholic. And certainly right up to the end, the two, the two things that he was never comfortable with was the position of the papacy and the, uh, the way that, that Catholics revere the Blessed Virgin. 
and these, of course, are the, the bugbears. These, these are the stumbling blocks. My own stumbling block is a convert, right? The last, the, the last prejudices to crumble away were the distrust of the papacy and, and the distrust of the Blessed Virgin. And, and I don't know what she's ever done to invoke all this uh, anger against her. But, you know, um, <laughs> and, and Lewis never managed to get over those barriers. And I think it, you know, I, I do talk address in my book how a lot of that is really ingrained from childhood. And we might say, well, you know, it's unjust to talk about someone being hardwired. But I think that some prejudices are so ingrained that it's very difficult to overcome them. And certainly we probably can't overcome them through the triumph of the will. We do need healing grace. And if we're not asking for the healing grace, perhaps we're not going to get it. I'll admit I was a little resistant to the idea that it was Lewis's own prejudice for someone who was in his pre-conversion days, very introspective, and he still overcame some considerable prejudices that he had just in simply accepting Christianity. But what swung me over to your position was when you spoke about his blind spot for the Blessed Virgin in his academic work as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he gets things completely back to front. You know, he basically says that the cult of the lady in a, you know, a more courtois and courtly love, you know, the, 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 the beautiful lady that we court and we admire, you know, Beatrice perhaps is the, is the ultimate literary uh, example of that, that corrupted into, into mariolatry, right, into, into worship of the Virgin, where it's completely the other way around. If you actually understand history, it was the devotion to the Blessed Virgin that when uh, in, in the, uh, the, the Renaissance time, when people were getting tired of Christianity, because there's only one form of Christianity to them, it was Catholic Christianity, they were getting tired of Christianity, uh, they turned their back on it, started to rediscover the pagan gods, so all the art starts to become full of Zeus and Venus and, and you know, less art about the, the the Holy Family, the devotion that, that was reserved for the Blessed Virgin now gets corrupted into something lower, which is to the ideal secular lady, okay? And of course, that gets corrupted still further when courtly love merely becomes a, a formalized stylistic way of committing adultery. I mean, that's where once you start moving away from the holiness of the center, you end up in bad places. And it surprises me that Lewis couldn't see that because his conversion was about understanding the true myth, the myth that became fact, the, um, the, the, the good dreams that God sent the pagans that eventually became manifested and true. Whereas when it comes to the Blessed Virgin, people were going from the true myth back to the pagan myth. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I say this, this blindness, there's a wonderful book I would recommend to your listeners called Reading the Classics with C.S. Lewis. And I can't at the moment remember the author of the, uh, of the chapter on medieval literature, but that really does show Lewis's uh, singular blindness. Now, for a, you know, he, he's more slightly post-medieval, I mean, he's a Renaissance scholar, really. But nonetheless, for someone whose who speciality is steeped in that medieval and post-medieval world, to have that singular blindness uh, is, is a problem. And, and, and quite frankly, I think it's a flaw which, um, which taints a lot of his literary criticism. What was the difference between Chesterton's journey and Lewis's? Because Chesterton became Christian and then eventually Catholic. What was the difference between their two journeys? Well, again, if, if we're going to return to, that's a very good question. Well, that gets me thinking. Um, but if we're going to return to what we're talking about here with, uh, with, with prejudices, the point is that, that Chesterton was raised in a sort of lukewarm, Unitarian-ish, vaguely Christian household. Um, 
but he had a romantic attachment to uh, to the Blessed Virgin and to St. Francis. He wrote an early poem about St. Francis Xavier, the sort of the idea of a Christian missionary going out and, and evangelizing the, the pagan world, India and China and what have you. So in actual fact, his romance was Catholic, even though his belief was sort of agnostic. So when he recoiled from Schopenhauer and the sort of the radical pessimism of, of Schopenhauer and the, the decadent aesthetic, which he sort of was attracted to for a brief time in the early 1890s when he was a young man at art school, when he recoiled from that and had recoiled towards Christianity, it was already at least a pseudo or quasi-Catholic Christianity to which he recoiled to. So it really was just a question of growing into the fullness of that. Whereas Lewis, I think, is starting from a place which is very anti-Catholic. And although he becomes more and more Christian because of his rational approach to reality, there were one or two of the elements of that anti-Catholicism from his childhood that, that he never, ever overcomes. Do you think his relationship with Joy Davidman played any factor in his resistance to the Catholic Church? Because while he believed in lifelong marriage, he did marry a divorced woman, which is an issue inextricably linked to the founding of the Church of England. There's very there's 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 more than one issue you've raised there. Really, I I think that Lewis's residual resistance to Catholicism was very much in place. But I think that Joy Davidman was further from Catholic Christianity than Lewis was. She was a, a femme formidable, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. She was a strong woman. Uh, you know, there are positive sides to that. She appears to have been a, a significant influence behind the inspiration for Till We Have Faces, which might be Lewis's greatest work of literature. And if it wasn't for her, we might not have had that. So in that sense, we would have a great debt of gratitude to Joy Davidman. But in another sense, she became a powerful force in his life, which, you know, if it's his wife, it's appropriate enough. And I think that force would have been antagonistic towards getting too close to Catholic Christianity. And yet, you know, he does talk about purgatory and about the Blessed Sacrament in those terms in Letters to Malcolm, which is you know, one of the last books he writes. Lewis had lots of Catholic influences in his life, and we've mentioned two of them thus far. Chesterton and Tolkien. The other major figure who helped form his religious thinking and identity is George MacDonald. Where did he fit in in terms of Lewis's relationship with the Catholic Church? Well, uh, I'm not sure that I would say that George MacDonald was a, a factor either leading to uh, a resistance to Lewis's approach to Catholicism or in its favor, because although, of course, he was uh, a Protestant and a um, Presbyterian, right? Originally, he, he later came away from that. Right. And became what did he become after something sort of singular? Yeah, he, he, he effectively embraced universalism. He reacted very negatively to the Calvinism of his youth. Ha. Huh which Lewis did, but not necessarily in the same way. Mm. Um, but see, but there's nothing in, well, there's nothing obvious in, in McDonald's works of fantasy that would suggest that, and not that I've seen, not that I'm an expert on McDonald from my reading of him. And I think that McDonald's main influence was to baptize Lewis's imagination, which was a good thing. I think that it allowed Lewis to get beyond the confines and constraints of um, uh, philosophical materialism and to see that uh, how love and acts of love, which we see in some of McDonald's works, transcend 
the purely material aspects of life. And I think all of that was to the good. And I think that did lead Lewis in the right direction. I think that's why in The Great Divorce, MacDonald has the, the singular role of being Virgil or Beatrice as being the guide. I thought he, in Surprised by Joy, he talks about the, the, the ripple effect of reading MacDonald in terms of the, the light from books like Fantasties starts then pervading the regular world. And so I thought that at least he helped move Lewis in a sacramental, sacerdotal kind of mindset. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. He Basically, the world became a place, uh, the everyday, the everyday uh, world becomes a place of mystery, right? A, a place of miracle, uh, a place that that's not merely the nitty gritty three dimensions, but something much deeper. And I think that that, that something which um, inspires McDonald's own muse. And I think that's that's something which is ultimately very healthy. I don't see McDonald as being a negative influence on Lewis's ecclesiology, should we say. Mm. But I could be wrong because I'm not a student of McDonald. I, I've only actually just started digging into him. Just this past week, I read his anthology of MacDonald. But it was, it was just out of the three people I always hear talked about in reference to Lewis. I didn't see MacDonald in your book, and I wondered what you might think about that. Being an Eastern Catholic, I often wonder if Lewis might have become Eastern Orthodox, because he praises the Eastern liturgy in Letters to Malcolm, Theosis is central to his theology, and it would have neatly avoided his hang-ups concerning the Pope, even if they wouldn't completely deal with all of his issues with the Theotokos, Mary. What do you think about that? Well, I think that I think that's a very good point. And you know, people say would Lewis have become Catholic? I'm I'm inclined to think it's more likely he'd become Orthodox, uh, and that's I, I think largely uh, because he, he would have to overcome his problems with the Blessed Virgin, but he wouldn't have to overcome his uh, aversion to the papacy. Um, he could sidestep that whole uh, issue and that whole problem. And I think we see it. We've seen it in thousands and thousands of converts uh, from Anglicanism and from the Evangelical Protestant world that have ch- taken the Eastern option, right? And, and my my I. Have have a great respect and love for the Eastern Church. I mean, that without getting controversial here, the schism is not so much separates the, 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 the church. Uh, it's just a question of differences within the church that please God one day by the grace of God will be resolved. But, you know, I, I love the Orthodox liturgy. There is an irony, of course, that Lewis was the, the, the old Western man, you know, <laughs> that he that his whole foundation philosophically uh, and aesthetically is built upon Western culture and Western civilization. Now, of course, that does include the Greeks. Um but but nonetheless, to, to to sort of turn his back on a large part of the Western patrimony and go east, young man, so to speak, <laughs> uh, there would be an irony there, uh, which uh, which I find somewhat visible. I was kind of surprised. I read an article by Callistus Ware, and it appears that Lewis's exposure to the fathers was not as wide as I had thought. You know, he quotes a lot from Augustine, but this was a guy who was fluent in Latin and Greek, and so I just naturally assumed that when he converted to Christianity, he would have just started moving through the fathers. Well, you know, I can sympathize with Lewis here because, you know, that he wasn't a theologian in the sense that his main love was not theology. So, you know, if Lewis had time to read for pleasure, he would read literature. And if he wasn't reading for pleasure, he was teaching, which means he'd be teaching literature. You know, and it's, I, I, I see a complete parallel with myself here. Now, I, I love theology in, insofar as it shows us God through scripture and through, through tradition. 
but I'd rather have my theology drip fed to me through a great work of literature. I, mean, I, I love I love beauty. And of course, you know, Lewis knew Augustine not because he was a theologian, but because the city of God and, and confessions are great works of literature as well as great works of theology. So, you know, he's a literature person and there's nothing wrong with that. He's not a theologian. So we shouldn't necessarily expect him to be widely read in theology. I mean, he clearly had read very little Thomas Aquinas. Thomism, such as he gets, as you suggest, he's got second hand, right, through Dante and others. And indeed, he reacts strongly against the neo-Thomism. He's not a friend of Jacques Maritain or Etienne Joulson. So um, he's not a theologian. Uh, and he's not even a philosopher in a Thomistic uh, or Augustinian sense, uh, more so in Augustinian sense, because he's more, obviously more, more read. But he's um, a literature person who understood and embraced the central tenets of what it was to be a Christian and could articulate that rationally. And that's what he did very well. But he's not a trained theologian and we shouldn't expect him to be one. Wonderful. Well, as we start to wrap up, can you please tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and your work? Yeah, sure. I've got a relatively new website that we launched just uh, last year, uh, and that's called jpierce.co. So J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. It's my personal website. They should check that out. And also they should check out what I'm doing with the Augustine Institute, and that's faithandculture.com. So one of those two venues will give them some idea of what I'm up to. My formation in English literature was terrible. So you are actually currently fixing my own schooling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to know. Thank you. And I'm a subscriber to your website. I've really been enjoying your series on allegory in Lewis and Tolkien. Oh, good. Yes, I, well, that actually given me the opportunity to advertise, for which I thank you. We have on the website what I call the Inner Sanctum, which is you know exclusive content for those that want to support my work by, by actually paying uh, a subscription. And we have been, we've been releasing 45 lectures on, on basically Tolkien and Lewis. Um, and I think we're about somewhere about 18 or 19 into that now. So I, I do hope that some of your listeners will check out jpierce.co and join the Inner Sanctum. Well, I hear the last call for drinks, and we've kept you from your birthday cake for long enough. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on to Pints with Jack and sharing with us your love of literature and Lewis. Thank you. It's not quite my 11th-1st birthday, but I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be lovely to have you come back on at some point to share with us and talk about some of your other books and the other figures that influenced Lewis's life, like Chesterton and Tolkien. It would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listeners, in addition to checking out the book C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, there'll be a link in the show notes, please share this episode on social media and feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack or go to the websites restlesspilgrim.net or pintswithjack.com. As I said at the beginning, talking about Lewis and his denominational allegiance is a bit of a sensitive subject. So if you disagree with what's been said in this episode, please feel free to reach out and tell us what you think. And next week, we'll be resuming our journey through the Great Divorce, when Lewis meets the hard-bitten ghost. When we'll be going further up... And further in. Cheers! Cheers! <laughs> <laughs>